Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams. We're doing something a little different this week. Eve and I are talking about books that we read as a buddy read. Yes, often when we interview our guests at the very end of the interview, we ask them, what's one book you love and why do you love it? And we celebrated our 100th anniversary by compiling some of these book recommendations from guests into one big, delightful episode of book recommendations. Recently, two of our guests recommended the same book. The first guest was Ellen McGarrahan. That was episode 106. And the second guest was Matthew Hangoltz Hetling. And that was episode 105. So, you know, back-to-back episodes, what are the chances? Well, the book they both recommended was Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which Julie had read and I had not read but been meaning to read. In fact, this is one of those books that I've just been seeing all over my apartment. You know, every time I turn around, there it is on a different coffee table. So the universe was speaking to us. And we decided that not only would we read Piranesi, but we would also read Susanna Clark's other book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, and then we would talk about them. So sort of a deep dive into one author. So I had bought Piranesi before we talked to Ellen and Matt um, because I had read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell and loved it. But Piranesi sat on my nightstand for a very, very long time because of the description on the back, which I did not find remotely compelling. I'll read a little from it now. Piranesi's house is no ordinary building. Its rooms are infinite, its corridors endless. Within the labyrinth of halls, an ocean is imprisoned, waves thunder up staircases, but Piranesi is not afraid. He understands the tides as he understands the pattern of the labyrinth itself, you know, sort of blah, 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 description, description. And it just, there was nothing that pulled me into reading the book, although I love Susanna Clark, so I wanted to read it. So after just looking at this book on my nightstand forever, I heard someone on a different podcast say, look, be patient with this book. It's actually a murder mystery. And I was like, a murder? I mean, I like murder mysteries, you know, and how could it possibly be that the description that I'm reading on the back of the book fits with a murder mystery? So I thought, all right, fine, I'll be patient and I'll try it. And I got into it, and I loved it. Hmm. And then, as I recall, I really encouraged you to read it, especially after Ellen and Matt had both raved about it. And... Yeah, I didn't make it past the first 10 pages. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited. You had recommended it, Ellen, Matt, you know, other people I know. And I sat down and I, you know, when you start this book, there's an opacity there. You don't know who the main character is. You know nothing about the main character. You know nothing about any human. It opens with many pages of physical description of the labyrinth of this house with endless rooms. And it's utterly devoid of emotions. It gave me no pleasure whatsoever. So I just thought to myself, okay, life is too short. (laughs) I don't have to make myself read this book. Right. Then I very meanly said, no, you have to keep reading because it would be such a good buddy read episode. You know, 
What's it like to push through reading a book that others you respect love, but you don't really like? And if you hate the whole reading experience, then that's an interesting conversation about why we disagree. So basically, I was like, I get to read a book I love, and you get to force your way through a book that you hate. It's going right. to be great. Yes, it was great. No, and I think I only agreed because the book was 250 pages long. Right. And I thought, okay, I can read a book I hate for 250 pages. <laughs> and also, I did have that little... I'm ashamed feeling of I'm an intellectual lightweight. You know, really, you can't read a book that doesn't have a traditional narrative structure and characters you can relate to. And what's wrong with you? I guess you're just, you know, really stupid now, because if it's not Ted Lasso, forget it. You know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, and I have to say, I'm so impressed because honestly, if you did the same to me, I don't know if I'd be able to do it. I'm very bad at pushing my way through a book I don't like. I get very stubborn. Well, I'm very good at motivating myself through self-loathing. Shame. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I guess I just have that edge on right. over you. <laughs> okay. So we will get to the big reveal. You know, yes. did I ever start to like the book? Will I ever forgive you, Julie, for making me read this book? I'm dying um, to know. I can't wait. Yes. But first, should we say a little about Susanna Clark? Absolutely. Because she is crazy talented and her story is a really interesting one. Yes. So as the New York Times tells it, she decided to write her first novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, when she was 33 years old. And she had just finished teaching English as a second language in Italy and Spain. She'd come back to England and she signed up for a course on writing fantasy and science fiction. I think it was like a five-day course. Mm -hmm. um, she had no formal writing training. And she had to submit a short story before the course started. So she had been working on this novel on her own, you know, with bits and pieces. And she pulled together some pages. She sent them off to the teacher of this course, who liked it so much that he sent it to a buddy of his named Neil Gaiman. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, and without telling her. Without telling her. Without telling her. Because Neil Gaiman was her favorite author of all time. Yes, and That exactly. would have been terrifying. Yes. And Neil Gaiman's response to reading these pages was, and I quote, it was terrifying from my point of view to read this first short story that had so much assurance. He said, it was like watching someone sit down to play the piano for the first time and she plays a sonata. Yeah. And you're, you're leaving out the juicy part, which is she marries the teacher. Oh, yeah. She doesn't marry <laughs> the teacher. <laughs> which I sort of understand. You know, you of took course. my short story and sent yeah. it to Neil Gaiman. I want to be with you for the rest of my life. It's a fabulous story. Yeah. So it took her another decade to finish Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell because it's 800 plus pages. Yeah. So, you know, give her a break. Right. And Neil Gaiman called that book when she finished unquestionably the finest English novel of the fantastic written in the last 70 years. Yeah. I mean, really. <laughs> it was on way too many best of lists to name here, but it won the Hugo Award and the World Fantasy Award. It was longlisted for the Booker Prize, shortlisted for the Whitbread First Novel Award, the Guardian First Book Award, and the British Book Awards Literary Fiction Award. I, I could go on and on, but Yes. And then it took Susanna another 16 years to publish her second novel, Piranesi, in 2020. And that is in part for a very sad reason. Um, shortly after the publicity tour for her first novel, she collapsed and suffered from a debilitating illness for almost two decades. Her symptoms included exhaustion and at times brain fog. And she was largely housebound for all those years. Like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, Piranesi was popularly and critically acclaimed. They were both New York Times bestsellers, and Piranesi was 
also a Hugo Award nominee for Best Novel, a Nebula Award nominee for Best Novel, a World Fantasy Award nominee for Best Novel. You're getting the picture. This is <laughs> this is a little bit of a repeat performance. Yes. Um, so I could go on, but many, many accolades, prizes. Yes. Thanks. Cra- craziness. And the widespread acclaim for both is all the more incredible when you consider how different the two books are. Jonathan Strange is, you know, 800 pages. It's set in the early 1800s in England, and it reads very much like a 19th century novel. To give you a sense of its style, here's how it starts. Some years ago, there was in the city of York, a society of magicians. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. Yeah, which instantly you're in. Yes. So here's how Piranesi opens. When the moon rose in the third northern hall, I went to the ninth vestibule to witness the joining of three tides. This is something that happens only once every eight years. The ninth vestibule is remarkable for the three giant staircases it contains. Its walls are lined with marble statues, hundreds upon hundreds of them, tier upon tier, rising into the distant heights. So... Yeah, could not be more different from Jonathan Strange. Yeah. It's very hard to summarize the plot of Piranesi, even if we didn't care about spoilers, but I'll give you a very top-level description. Basically, there's a main character, and at first we know absolutely nothing about this person except that they live in this very strange house that is so vast it contains entire oceans, plural, and weather systems, and there's this labyrinth of almost countless huge chambers, some of which are described, as I said, in great (laughs) detail in the opening pages. Um, But gradually, we come to learn more about this character and about other characters and about the house and the world both inside and outside the house. Okay, so now the big moment. How did it go after I forced you to proceed? I have this vision of you sitting rigidly in the corner of the couch, legs crossed, you know, rolling your eyes and flipping pages angrily, murmuring, God damn you, Julie Sternberg. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It never got that bad, I promise. (laughs) And in fact, in fact, I'm really grateful you had me read it because I ended up liking the book. Oh, good. It's not 247 pages of detailed description of a labyrinth of rooms. No. There's so much more to it than that. And I'm very happy that I read it. I don't know that I would say that this is a book, you know, that I'm going to carry with me in my soul forever. Mm -hmm. But it is a book that I cared about and was satisfied by. And I often and increasingly as the book went on, I was very moved by the main character. We should just call the main character Piranesi. That's one of the character's names. And there's a complexity around the name of this character, which we don't need to go into. But for simplicity's sake, I was very moved by Piranesi himself and really glad to have read the book. So thank you, Julie Sternberg. You're so you're so welcome. And I'm going to try to take this lesson to heart and do a better job of forging through books where people who I love have recommended them, even though I sometimes struggle. So, okay. So I really was intrigued. Like, how is this very strange setup going to turn into a a murder mystery? And the doling out of information is so skillfully done. And I did quickly become fascinated by that. So the first example that really grabbed me comes on page nine. 
Piranesi is referring to the only other living person in this house or world. And I'm quoting here, Piranesi, it's what he calls me, which is strange because as far as I remember, it is not my name. Yeah. Again, I was just really drawn into sort of what is happening. You realize in retrospect that there are many details she's giving you from the very beginning that don't leap off the page as clues, but in fact are clues to what's happening later. Yes. And I, I'm so glad that we did this episode because I went back and reread it and it's a very rewarding reread. I will say too, that when I read that line from page nine, I was like, wait, what is Paranesi? So I went and looked up Paranesi and it turns out that there was an 18th century Italian artist named Giovanni Battista Piranesi, who was known for a series of etchings called imaginary prisons which is intriguing. Yeah. There's also this clue in that same line that something's happening to Piranesi's memory. The line is, you know, Piranesi, it's what he calls me, which is strange because I, as far as I remember it, it's not my name. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting because Piranesi's voice, you learn very quickly, it's naive, it's full of joy and awe. And at the same time, Something obviously has happened to his memory, which got me thinking, like, how much does having negative memories really or a lifetime of memories affect our ability to feel this sort of true joy and awe? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I would say from my own lived experience, a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. The less naive and innocent I am, the less joy and naivete I find. But in the book, forgive me if this is a spoiler, but Piranese maintains that voice of joy and awe, even as Piranese loses innocence. To me, that's one of the biggest rewards of the book. And Mm. at first, I was concerned about that. You know, at first I was sort of charmed by Piranese's innocence. And then I started to think, oh, is this like some Forrest Gump kind of thing? Mm. You know, which I was not looking for Forrest Gump. But it's richer than that. It's deeper than that. Yeah. And the voice does evolve. The voice does evolve. Yeah. But never loses its... um, Hopefulness. It's radical. It's his lack of judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, terrible things happen and he's aware of it and he doesn't pretend it doesn't happen. He doesn't pretend that it's anything less than terrible. But there's just this radical acceptance of this is what happens. And he feels sad at times. It's not that he's impervious. Right. But that that was the thing that moved me most about this book, that Piranese is this incredibly careful, non-judgmental and forgiving observer and listener. You know, it's so interesting because I remember calling my therapist during COVID mm-hmm. and I was being irrationally bothered by the sound of airplanes. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, they're driving me I'm so me excited crazy. to hear how you tie this into our discussion <laughs> of Pyrenees. <laughs> they're just driving me crazy. You know, when an airplane flies over and it feels like it's happening all the time and every time it happens, you know, I get very tense and frustrated. And of course, I can't control anything about it, which is, of course, at the heart of so many of my, my problems. What do I do? I felt like it was an incredibly frustrating conversation with my therapist because she said, you have to try to just listen to that 
with no judgment. Mm -hmm. You have to try to hear the airplanes and just be like, it's an airplane. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just an airplane. And this is not the first time that she has advised me to react to life, to try to, A, be very, very attentive to details, description, Mm -hmm. what's going on in a very non-judgmental way. That is the key, according to my therapist, to mental health, you know, (laughs) and living a good life. And he does that. He's able to do that. That is the effect in part of this house. And it has a lot of benefits. It does. For one thing, when you don't try to shut out the airplane, the world gets bigger because the world includes the airplane. Right. And that was one of the things I was really struck by in this book, which contains no airplanes whatsoever. But (laughs) Piranesi is interested in everything in the house and there's no hierarchy. So he's equally interested in, there are birds that live in the house and there are many, many statues in the house. There are living people. There are the bones of dead people. And all of those things are equally fascinating to him and equally rich subjects for him to come to know and to contemplate. And I just kept thinking, what would it feel like? And maybe this is what your therapist is offering you. What would it feel like to see the world that way? Yeah. Well, I think it would be immensely beneficial. It's so hard. <laughs> like I've yeah. tried it. It's so hard. Yeah. It's almost at odds with everything we I'll speak for myself. It's at odds with what I was raised to do, right? There was a real premium on thinking and having opinions and on judging, you know, because that showed intelligence. And it's interesting to think about that it's not all good. No. That in fact, it can be quite harmful. And I think we're living in a moment where that's even more true. Where do you stand on this issue? And depending on what you say, you are good or bad. Right. And if you stand one way on this issue, that means you also stand this way on 25 other issues. It's very confining. It just shuts us off from so many things and people. It's interesting, too, on a broader scale, because I feel like what we were raised with was a Western approach. What is being described in Piranesi and by my therapist is more Eastern approach. You know, it's a divide that doesn't need necessarily to be there. And we would benefit from learning more from others and and applying it. Yeah. There's another quotation I want to bring in right now, because I think it relates to what we're saying. Piranese says, I realized that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unraveled, a text to be interpreted. Mm. And that if we ever discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house and Mm. all that remains will be mere scenery. The sight of the 192nd Western Hall in the moonlight made me see how ridiculous that is. The house is valuable because it is the house. It is enough in and of itself. It is not the means to an end. Yeah, that's perfect. It's reminiscent, too, of of what our guest Ellen McGarrahan said drew her to the book. You know, the spiritual references to the house, the Mm -hmm. beautiful orderliness of the house is what gives us life. Yeah. And in fact, there is this line, the beauty of the house is immeasurable. It's kindness infinite. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting because that view of the house changes 
over the course of the book. And that shift is really interesting, I think, when you consider the fact that Susanna Clark had been housebound because of illness for years as she wrote this, right? The, the house was in some ways what kept her safe, made her feel safe. And she said, you know, I don't think I realized straight away all of these resonances between Paranese's being in his house and her own being in hers. As soon as I started working on it seriously, she said, then I could see them. Yes. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Jonathan Strange or is there more you want to say about Piranesi? Let's talk about Jonathan Strange. Okay. Let's do it. I'm going to just read a little of the publisher's description to give our listeners a sense of what the book is about. English magicians were once the wonder of the known world, but by the early 1800s, they have long since lost the ability to perform magic. But the rich, reclusive Mr. Norrell has regained some of the powers of earlier magicians. Soon he is lending his help to the government in the war against Napoleon Bonaparte. All goes well until a rival magician, Jonathan Strange, appears. It soon becomes clear that their ideas of what English magic ought to be are very different. I think I love this book because I love sinking into the worlds of great 19th century novels. Mm -hmm. It has the tone of some of my favorite of those books. You know, it's sort of critical of the society. It's very aware of its faults. But it feels like it's kind of searching in, you know, corners for goodness hmm. in these worlds. Susanna Clark told the New York Times, one way of grounding the magic in Jonathan Strange is by putting in lots of stuff about street lamps, carriages, and how difficult it is to get good servants. <laughs> and then the, the reporter notes, so her apartment is challenged by bookcases full of soldiers' accounts of Waterloo and dozens of slim books on such subjects as styles of visiting cards and mausoleums. When a certain character draws a knife from a well-laid table near the end of the novel and holds it to a man's throat, now he's quoting Susanna, I had to restrain myself from buying a book on 19th century fruit knives. And I know you can relate to that impulse. Oh, my God. Impulse, can I relate yeah. to that impulse? I mean, as, yeah. as I think you know, I've read Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series three times. I own the companion novel that sits beside me as I read that gives me detail about, you know, various <laughs> objects on the ship and things. Know that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It makes for a much richer reading experience. <laughs> I have the cookbook that includes recipes for every single food item mentioned in the book, including rats, because when, you know, these books largely take place on ships and when food stores get low, you resort to what's at hand. That um, is I, disgusting. I know. I know. It's fabulous. Um, and, and I have the album of every piece of music that's mentioned in the book. Oh so I can totally relate to that impulse. And yeah. these novels are also set during the Napoleonic War, and they are some of the best world building I've ever read, both in terms of that time period and the place. Right. Which is why it pains me to say, <laughs> I didn't like Jonathan Strange at all. <laughs> and I do need to admit that I only read the first 200 pages or so. I did not give it a full reading, much like Piranese, which I ultimately gave a full. I, I did the same thing. I, I learned <laughs> well, nothing. I'm not going to make you read all 800 pages. Eva, but I, I did not find the world building all that compelling. It is suggestive of a time and place. But her portrayal of England during the Napoleonic Wars, it doesn't reveal anything to me about 
that time or place. I can see how if you're someone who sits with the companion book about, you know, fair, in totally incredibly fair. detailed, I don't tend to read those as much. I felt enough of the world to be satisfied. Have you watched the TV series? I haven't yet, but it's gotten really good reviews. It's got a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and an 88% from the audience, which is pretty good. Ooh. Okay. All right. So here's what I'm going to say. I think I might try the TV series. Oh, good idea. That might be a way into the book for me because I want to like this book. I like fantasy and, and I like you. So I like this book that you like so much. Can I ask you, have you even gotten to Jonathan? You have. You've gotten to Jonathan Strange. No, I stopped before I met Jonathan Strange. You haven't even gotten to Jonathan Strange. So a lot of the book is is about this dynamic between the, the two of them. I think the book would get much more interesting for you, but I'm not going to tell you you have to read it. The last time you pushed me to read a book I didn't think I liked I found it really rewarding. So I'm not going to lord that over you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm never going to reference that again. I'm going to leave that to you to make your own decision. (laughs) Okay. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.